Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today you will be listening about clinical trials. I spoke with Glenn DeVries, president of Medidata, the world's largest platform for clinical research trial data. Medidata is working with several research groups working on the COVID-19 vaccine, including messenger RNA-based vaccine in development by Moderna. This vaccine was the first vaccine in human clinical trials already in March. The third phase, with 30,000 participants from the US, began end of July. Glenn talked about why we have reasons to be optimistic in vaccine development for COVID-19. He also shared some insight about his new book, The Patient Equation, and explained why the clinical trials are complicated and how is technology from platforms to AI helping accelerate trial development and data analysis. Enjoy the show, and if you like what you will hear, to leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. And to search through other episodes as well, Visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Now to the discussion with Glenn. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me. We were actually supposed to have this interview end of July, but as it turns out, things got really busy for you because among other things, you started collaborating with Moderna on the probably most publicly known uh, clinical trial for the COVID-19 vaccine. So I guess the question, how are you, is uh, fair to ask as a first one. Yeah, no, so I, I am I am very busy and not just Moderna. Um, we are we're working with um, a lot of different organizations, actually of uh, a, a huge spectrum in terms of their size, biotechs, large pharma, uh, academics, and extremely busy um, with what will very hopefully be um, some uh, candidates for vaccines as well as different approaches to therapies. Uh, but yeah, all of a sudden, everybody seems to know who we are and what we do, um, which was definitely very different than uh, you know, years and been actually, in my case, decades ago, when you, know, you would try to explain to people that you worked in the world of clinical trials and nobody knew what you were talking about. Now I feel like the the front page of uh, every newspaper and, and above the scroll fold of every website has information about clinical trials. With the rising number of COVID-19 patients, we are obviously all hoping for a successful solution to reach the market fast. Over 165 vaccines are currently in development. Uh, two of them were actually already approved. And there's various clinical trials that are happening. And to increase the speed of development and to make the uh, a vaccine available as soon as possible, the U.S. government announced Operation Warp Speed, which aims to deliver 300 million doses uh, of a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19 by January 2021. So basically in a few months. And that's quite unprecedented because if that is going to be successful. So if we actually are going to have the vaccine by the end of this year, this will be the fastest developed vaccine in the world. So a few questions here. To which extent can money increase the speed of vaccine development? And yeah, based on your experiences, how far are we with um, AI development and data collection that can increase that speed? 
if you look at the speed of development, and uh, I think this this applies to to really anything. Um, it could be something in oncology. It could be a vaccine. One of the questions that you need to ask is, how am I going to determine what is good, what is safe, what is effective, what is valuable? And uh, at least in the case of a vaccine, what I think people have in their favor is that uh, showing that somebody has the ability with a vaccine to create an immune response that is equivalent to a patient who has been exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, without having been exposed to that virus, is an endpoint that is actually relatively quick to determine. It's not um, something that might take as much time as if we were waiting for a disease with a, a longer kind of natural progression, like a, a cancer, to, and to see if a particular therapy is, is slowing it down or stopping it faster or slower than an existing therapy. So in some ways, speed is, is potentially on the side of the vaccine um, developer. The other things that I think can if I can, no real pun intended, but kind of bend the curve to appropriate the phrase in terms of vaccine development is one thing that also affects all clinical trials, regardless of therapeutic area, how quickly you can find patients, how fast you can recruit in terms of, of finding people who are willing to volunteer to be in the clinical trial. If you're doing something that is a, a precision therapy, that is going to be used in patients who have a particular cancer with particular mutations and you're looking for uh, certain other aspects of their their medical history, how they got to the point that they need this therapy. The more specific, the more precise the medicine, the smaller and smaller the group of patients who could possibly be volunteers for you becomes. In the case where you have a global pandemic, unfortunate as it is, frankly, you have a much larger pool of patients to recruit from. And the nature of the vaccines um, that are being developed is not something that I at least would classify as that type of precision medicine. The at least strategies that, that I see out in the marketplace are around the same thing as you'd get from a flu shot. Here is, what is something that we can give to any person that has a, a healthy immune system and create an immune response so that they can fight off this virus before it actually becomes COVID-19. So from a, recru a recruiting perspective, we're, we're also in, I think, a pretty uh, good position where, as an industry, we'll be able to find plenty of volunteers. And then I think the, the third thing which you brought up, what are the mathematical techniques that we might be able to use that go beyond the typical way that we would evaluate data in a research project to actually show that there is this safety, this efficacy, this value um, for a patient in, in being exposed to this therapy. And I think there's a couple things that can be done. No matter what, we need to do the basic biostatistics. I, I, I don't think there's any shortcuts in terms of proving basic safety and efficacy. You know, if we're going to show that patients have an, an immune response that is equivalent to a convalescent COVID-19 patient, there, there's very specific assays and math that's related to that. But I also think we're in a really interesting kind of position in terms of our understanding of COVID-19, our understanding of the virus of SARS-CoV-2. I, I have a book that's coming out called The Patient Equation. And it's about how we can think differently about the mathematics of therapies and certainly of that in research. And if we look at what's happening in the world of COVID-19 and this pandemic that we're all sitting in, I think if you were to, to rewind the clock half a year, we had a very limited view of what really mattered 
in terms of predicting who would be exposed to the virus and how sick they would get. And we were looking at things like age and immune status as kind of two of the, if not the two primary drivers. And I think if you now look at at what's happening in the world, we are uh, unfortunately seeing children who are coming down with, may not even be COVID-19, but this uh, inflammatory syndrome. Um, so, you know, not only are the inputs maybe not just age and immune status, but maybe we should be looking for outputs in terms of exposure that aren't limited to what we've been thinking of as this originally kind of upper respiratory style disease. But there's also things where we have young, otherwise healthy people who are exposed to the virus and come down with significant, in some cases, fatal cases of, of COVID-19. And wouldn't it be useful if we could predict what are the input variables that result in bad cases of COVID-19 as the output? One of the places where, where artificial intelligence and machine learning can really bend the curve, again, I'll appropriate the phrase in, the, in a societally useful way, is if we can create that predictive mathematical model. And so the, the more we can think about not just the data that's in these cl individual clinical trials, but we can combine data from clinical trials into larger and larger data sets and combine that with data that is from the rest of the world outside of clinical trials, we start to, to create kind of a, a data field, a mathematical view of what's happening in the pandemic um, that I think is going to be really useful well beyond the research. But as we think about managing from a societal perspective, exposure to this virus in a much more population oriented way. We mentioned that you're working with Moderna and also a lot of other researchers that are currently involved in the COVID-19 research space. So, you know, just before we continue, I wanted to take a minute to explain a little bit more about what exactly is it that you do. You're using AI and advanced analytics to bring data managers, clinical operations and investigators together and, and accelerate the science. But so you mentioned a lot of hurdles that are present even before you get to the data. So how exactly are you, you know, making things easier? It's good to think about what we do at Medidata in kind of three different tiers. And I'll, I'll start at the bottom. And this is really where uh, we started the company just over 20 years ago. It, it literally, as an idea, started at a lab bench that I, I shared with somebody who's one of the other founders. And, um, and we were frustrated in the 90s in the late 90s with the infrastructure for clinical trials. So you mentioned the investigators, the physicians, the, their nurse staff. Then you're working with the scientists and the professionals in, in the pharma company, the biotech. All these people need to collaborate to run a clinical trial. You need infrastructure. And we were very frustrated ourselves two decades ago as researchers, as people participating in, uh, in clinical trials and running them both commercially and academically, uh, with that infrastructure. So Medidata was founded on this idea of connecting all of those professionals and all of the data necessary. Then about a decade after that, we realized that as people started to have this thing, which we call mobile now, or we call smartphones now, you know, back then, you know, the, the iPhone had just kind of come out and this was, was kind of a new idea, but we, We've been wrong about many things over the years, but we intuited that this infrastructure of the internet that we use to connect all the professionals in research was now going to be something in the pocket of all patients. And if you think about the people who are required to make a clinical research project work, 
the largest group of them, and frankly, the most important group of them, because the ones that we're, we're doing all this to serve, are the patients themselves. They, they far outnumber the professionals working on it. And so we realized the internet was going to be in people's pockets. We could connect the patients. And, and I actually think this is going to be relevant in terms of some of the hurdles. Then, you, so we kind of floated metadata on top of the internet for professionals. We floated metadata on top of mobile for patients. About just over half a decade ago, we said, well, we're doing all this research on a single platform, which is really kind of unprecedented in, in the history of clinical trials. Is there something we can float on top of metadata itself? And that's when we really got into this world of artificial intelligence and, and trying to help people look at data in different ways. Kind of, kind of with that background, I think there are barriers that we should be thinking about at all those levels. Thinking about barriers for the physicians, for the patients, for the, the mathematical tex- techniques that we use. You said yourself that the Metadata was founded uh, 20 years ago, which I thought was interesting because I don't think that 20 years ago data was seen as the new gold as it is today, you know. So it's like I wonder what your vision was at that time and did you pivot as companies often do? I actually don't think we really pivoted. Um, I, I don't think I thought of data as kind of the new gold, but I was a a young researcher. Uh, I was working on a urology-related, it's a prostate cancer-related assay that was aimed at helping people make better therapeutic decisions. So what is the right therapy to give to different patients based on a molecular staging of their tumor? And all of that is not necessary um, from a background perspective. Just imagine me at this lab bench um, with a bench full of experiments where I was trying to, to make this technique work. Behind me, was a refrigerator full of tubes of blood from the volunteers who had come into this research project. Of course, this was the mid-90s, so just to, to date myself a little bit, everybody in the lab was sharing a Windows 95 PC um, that was in the corner of the lab, so we took turns with it. It was connected to the internet, to be fair, but all of my data was there from an, an analytical perspective. So it was in SPSS data sets and Excel files and text files. To get the data, I had a combination of paper on that lab bench that was in front of me. And in some cases, I literally had to like take an elevator to the street, go across the street and up another elevator to access some of the hospital systems where some of the other kind of chart data and outcomes data was for those patients. And frankly, sometimes I had to go and find their medical charts, um, the original charts. And so, it, no, I wasn't thinking data is the new gold, um, but certainly, uh, whatever this was 25 years ago now, data was the problem. The infrastructure to connect all that data to get to the point that we could publish a paper that said, hey, this technique works or this technique doesn't work was something that, that as somebody working in research, I just, I thought was this horrible barrier to execution. Why was it so difficult to connect all these dots? to come up with some useful piece of information. And so Metadata was really born out of that. Our company has always been focused on how do you go from a hypothesis, um, which is what you start every, obviously, experiment with and, and extends to clinical trials, how do you get from that hypothesis to the point that you have proven or disproven it as efficiently, as quickly as possible? And I, I told you about kind of the, the, the steps in, in terms of thinking about metadata from a professionals and a patients and an AI perspective, you know, did, did we add to the ways that we thought about solving that problem of hypothesis to conclusion? Um, yes. You know, we, we 
We'd started with very basic infrastructure amongst the people who were trying to create the evidence. We extended the infrastructure to the participants who were, were actually the source of the evidence. We started to layer on top of that the ability to look at data, not just in the silo of that one experiment, but to look more broadly to create kind of a bigger denominator and more evidence. Um, but we never really pivoted. It's always been our mission. Frankly, it's still mission, our mission today. How are you navigating the complex landscape of data standards? You said that the data standardization was a problem already when you began, and it just got worse by today. I think that that is, is frankly, still one of the big barriers. It's actually a, a really simple one, uh, not not simple to solve, but simple problem to understand. You know, if you want to create, as I was, I was saying before, I use the phrase denominator, right? So you know, we're looking at a fraction. We want to look at you know how many people who got drug A versus drug B had a, had a good outcome. And the more people that we have for A plus B, you know, on the bottom of that fraction, the better. Well, if the people who were getting drug A, the way we measured things about them, if the way we measured their tumor volume, if we, me way the me we measured their blood chemistry, if the way we recorded their past medical history is totally different because it was done in a different experiment, the way we recorded all that data for patients who got drug B, it is very difficult, not just logistically, but remember, we, we're going to make a conclusion on which one of these drugs should be used that is going to affect people's lives. So we have to be scientifically, we have to be responsible in terms of making sure that all that data gets harmonized, gets homogenized in a way that we can, we can do the kinds of analyses in a way that, that is appropriate for, you know, human outcomes to be in the balance. And so if you take that problem, this is what happens in clinical trials today. You can kind of supersize that. You know, if you look at hundreds of different diseases, if you look at thousands, tens of thousands of clinical trials, which is what we do at MediData. If you look at the millions of patients who are participating in those trials and you realize you've got a, a data harmonization problem, it's not a trivial one to solve. That's not to say it can't be solved. So some of the things that, that we've been focusing on at MediData in the last uh, few years have been approaches to do exactly that. And uh, I'll be candid, sometimes it takes people and their hands on keyboards and and there's elements of making sure that you are doing that again correctly responsibly um, that require human effort but the fact of the matter is there are a lot of techniques in machine learning that can be extremely helpful and actually automate a lot of that problem so We've done things, um, for example, where you can take data from multiple clinical trials um, about the same cancer and combine them into a single data set. There is a, a technique called creating a, a synthetic controls, right? In any experiment, you've got kind of your control group and your experimental group. Clinical trials are the same, right? You've got your, your patients who get the new therapy. And you've got patients who get standard of care, the, the therapy that's on the market today. Or in the case where there's no therapy, like a, a COVID-19 vaccine or a, a saline solution, something that is, is inert, uh, a placebo. And so if you're going to run 10 clinical trials in the same disease with 10 different therapies, why would you try to find a control group, people who are getting a placebo or a standard of care in all 10 of those clinical trials, when ideally we could just have one person out of every 11 people who are exposed to one of these great new therapies or one of these vaccine candidates be 
the control group and share that control group across everybody. So what you do is you try to take patients who are in clinical trials, reuse their data. Um, so they're ca called synthetic controls, not because the patients are, you know, artificial. The patients are very, very real. But what you're doing is synthesizing them into this new cohort, into this new piece of a denominator um, that can be extremely useful, um, again, in terms of proving the, the value of a drug. And then we've also now moved beyond that. We actually presented some of that work in terms of clinical trial uh, data reuse uh, a few years ago at ASCO was the first time we presented about it publicly. Um, just this year at, at virtual ASCO, we were showing how you could take data that was from outside of clinical trials. An even bigger problem, because now you don't just have these tidy research data, but you have, in some cases, very messy data that is coming from charts and different electronic medical record systems and different standards of, of care, um, different types of practices around the world. You're trying to assemble that into a sensible data set, and, and it can be done. And then you can actually not just compare the data that's across different clinical trials, but actually start to bring in data from outside of clinical trials to make that denominator even bigger. And so all of that is really, I mean, I, I think it's super exciting, but it's entirely focused on that one simple problem that you, you, you so correctly brought up as a, the first issue to deal with, which is, do I have a consistent set of data which I can use to, to fix this problem? I, I, one of the examples I love to give has nothing to do with, with medicine, but um, if you remember, uh, I actually can't remember how many years ago it was now, but there was a, a Mars probe that crashed. And it turns out the problem was two of the teams that were working on getting this thing to land on Mars were doing different, using different units. So, you know, this is that same problem. You have to make sure everybody's using the same units. So I've got like five questions on top of what everything that you just said. So uh, the synthetic samples that you were talking about, is that different from digital twins? That's one. And then the second one I had in mind was, to which extent do you think that basically natural language processing or other uh, machine learning and AI techniques will just help us um, stop worrying about standards? So... Our standards going to become obsolete, a quote unquote, you know. So, and yeah, the third one that I was thinking about was you also mentioned how you can basically take data from one trial or from outside the trial to make use of it. And so I really wonder, given that you're working with various companies that are working on the same problem, even if from different perspectives, yeah. to which extent can you as metadata work as a consolidator or connector of all those research efforts so they don't duplicate you know do you have to be um uh, do you have to separate each client you know is it a silos approach completely and to which extent you can encourage collaboration we've actually obviously metadata is a, is a company right people come to us and and purchase our our help, right? Whether it's infrastructure or solutions from an AI perspective. But we also feel like we are a research company. We're part of the research community. And many of us, obviously myself included, come from an, an academic scientific background. So we also, besides doing that work, we, I mean, if anybody's interested, you can look at, at metadata.com slash the Metadata Institute. Um, but we, we do do academic uh, publishing. So we will work with, with clients, we'll work with partners, um, industry and academic, and we'll prove out these ideas. 
and make sure that people have the transparency in terms of understanding how we've done some of these things so that they can feel comfortable doing them. And then we also work with our clients and, and we're doing this in a couple of cases with these synthetic controls where we will help them bring data to a regulator with the analyses and, and we'll, we have many people who used to work at regulators on part of Medidata and we'll, we'll try to help them um, actually present things in a compelling way. Um, so the more that happens, I think the more often we'll see in a very good way for everybody, certainly for patients, um, I really believe for the industry, we'll see people collaborating more. And I feel like it, our responsibility is to create a platform to do that. So, so with that, you know, how do you get there so you can do that? And, and I think maybe not quite literally, but kind of metaphorically, this idea that standards will cease to, to matter. It does make sense to me. There's this idea of an ontology. What is a piece of data? Really? So maybe you label it as SBP and I label it as systolic and somebody else, you know, has a different name in another language for systolic blood pressure, but they're all systolic blood pressures. And if you, if you gave me or probably, probably almost anybody who is listening to us right now, a, a graph, a histogram that showed a bunch of systolic blood pressures, right? And they would, it would be centered on 120 or something close to that, might vary a little bit with the sample of people. And we'd see most of the, the curves happening somewhere between, you know, 110 and 130, and then it'd drop off and look like a nice little bell curve. I think if you showed that to people and said, what is this piece of medical data? Somebody who's done anything in research or medicine, they'd all go, it's systolic blood pressure. We'd recognize that pattern. And so that is machine learning, just done in our brains. That's, that's human brain learning, but it's that pattern recognition. So if you have data that has been well curated, apropos to what, you know, we were both talking about from the, the Mars probe, like you have to have the same units, but if you've got consistent data with the same units and you present it, even if it's much more complex than the, the systolic blood pressure example I gave, that's where the machine and machine learning comes in. You can recognize those patterns and you can say, I don't care what you label this. It's systolic blood pressure. I don't care what you label this, but it is a, a measure of prostate-specific antigen in a prostate cancer patient, like the research I was doing 20 years ago. So the more we, as an industry, as a, the academic world of, of life sciences, the more we, we learn how to do that, the easier it's going to be to translate something between one set of labels and another set of labels. So that doesn't mean that, and that's why I said it's like kind of metaphor, not literal, that, that standards don't matter. If you're going to do your analysis, you need a set of labels. You need a, a view of the world for how you're going to manage that data. And, and it may be different than mine, but if we really understand what those labels mean and how they map together, then you, you can use your standard. I can use my standard and we can share data. And I'll just, uh, I'll give you an example. It's because it, it was when I was kind of put on the spot about this. And I, I think it's a really important one, uh, actually, to think about the ultimate future of data sharing. I had the opportunity to speak to a bunch of cardiologists. And I told you, I, I used to work in urologic oncology. I, I don't know anything about cardiology. So I, I figured I better confess that I didn't know anything about it really quickly. And the, the topic I, I was talking about is how to create a mathematical model for a disease, right? Uh, again, the, the patient equation, the title of my book, like their inputs and their outputs. Well, if you are trying to make a model for cancer or a particular kind of cancer, and the only place you look 
for data for that model is in cancer clinical trials, your model is probably not going to be that good or certainly not complete because everybody was already diagnosed with cancer in those trials. But if I'm able to now go to a bunch of cardiology trials or a bunch of diabetes trials and find when patients who were being treated for cardiology problems were originally diagnosed with cancer, I have a lot of stuff I can now bring into my cancer model about time point zero and what led up to time point zero. So if you now take, you asked about natural language processing, this is another great place where we can start to say, and this is what I was saying to the cardiologists, like if you're looking for cardiology events, wouldn't it be great to go look in that oncology trial and find when patients had some kind of cardiac issue, whether it was a side effect of the drug they were taking or not, and bring that into your own models. That's the kind of place where things like natural language processing, um, again, in, in translating these labels, not just the data themselves, but sometimes just the way it's recorded. And certainly if we're looking at a, a, a human written note in somebody's chart, we need things like NLP to get actual data out of it. But I, I think that those things are incredibly useful. And I, I, again, at least conceptually, the idea of standards being less relevant for the way we have to curate a master set of data, but more around translating data between standards becomes relevant. And then let me end with this idea of digital twins. And it's something that Deso System, which is a company that acquired Metadata uh, towards the end of last year, is really, I think, the, the world's leading platform on. Again, if it's okay to give you a metaphor, and it comes from the CEO of Deso System, uh, Bernard Charles. He, he kind of put this actually thought in my mind before we got acquired, and I just thought, wow, uh, I'm so excited to be part of this company because of this kind of thinking. And Deso System is a, a company that does a lot before Metadata and Life Sciences, but certainly also has a very rich um, history in aerospace and in automotive and in making very, helping people make very complicated things. You know, drugs are really complicated things, but airplanes are also really complicated things. And, and cars are complicated things. You know, when people design cars and Deso system is used in like nine out of 10 cars on the roads around the world in terms of designing them, they all drive and like eight out of 10 planes and they all fly. The first time you try to fly them, right? They all fly. Well, that's because there was this digital twin. There was a simulation of the, the plane. There was a simulation of the car. And frankly, it goes down below the, the totality of it. There was probably a simulation of the wing and not just the wing, but the airflow over the wing and a simulation of the electrical systems and how they interacted with maybe the servos that were controlling parts of the wing. So like take this and apply it to, to life sciences. And look, I, I, I thought I was going to spend my whole life doing molecular biology. I, I think a, a, a deep appreciation for the, co the complexities of biology, human and et cetera. So you go from genetic code, you think about the transcription of DNA to RNA. This is actually literally a picture of this in, in the patient equation. You go from, from DNA to messenger RNA, to proteins, to cells, to organs, systems, the, the whole human, the, the way that human is thinking and behaving and their interaction with the rest of the planet, which by the way, in COVID-19, that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of contact uh, tracing. It's a part of our phenotype that's related to who we interacted with, not just what's going on inside the walls of our, our skin. And so you, if you think about all these levels, all these levels 
have the same kind of possibilities from a digital twin that you would have if you were designing a plane. We should be able to, in fact, we can simulate what's happening with our genes. We can simulate what's happening in our cells. We can simulate what's happening with our organs. Actually, at Deso System, we've been doing this very successfully with the human heart. We're going to be able to do it with more and more organs. Then we're going to be able to do it with more and more systems in the body and ultimately start to actually simulate what's happening in a, a full human, the, the digital twin of a human, simulate what's happening in a population, simulate what's happening as people interact with each other. Again, we have pieces of this but I think if we go all the way back to this idea of how do experiments work, the simplest experiments, the ones that you and I both did when we were taking chemistry class in high school, you have the, the experiment and you have the control. Well, I think especially when we're doing something as important and with a, a subject matter as precious as human life, like we have to figure out how to make, as I said before, that denominator as big as possible. So I really see a world where in every experiment that we are doing, in every research project, you have the patients who are being exposed to this new therapy, who are trying something for the first time. I don't think in probably my lifetime we're going to be good enough at simulation to, to not be really careful when we put things into people for the first time. We're going to watch what happens vigilantly. But... We will probably, at the same time as giving a patient something, we'll look at a group of patients, synthetically assembled or otherwise, who were given a placebo or a standard of care. I think we'll be looking at a group of patients synthetically assembled from other research projects who will be given alternative therapies. We'll look at a group of patients from outside of the world of research, patients who were treated by, by doctors in an uncontrolled way with, with different drugs as at least one, if not multiple groups. And we will have this simulation as yet another piece of the denominator. And by taking all of those into account and always kind of iterating from a hypothesis generation and then what's the next experiment to prove that hypothesis right or wrong? What's, what's the new information that we can use to improve the simulation at the same time as we're, we're improving the formulation of the drug or, or how we think about the course of therapy? That is the world that I want to be a, a life scientist in. That's the world I want to be a, a patient in. That, that I think is where we get the best outcomes. So, so the idea of digital twins is related to some of these things, but I think in some ways a yet another thing to think about from an evidence perspective. When do you think these kinds of simulations could be useful in a broader sense? You know, so because when it comes to precision medicine, for example, especially in cancer research, we already have genetic tests that can be used to predict how a patient is going to respond to a specific drug. However, it's still often difficult to to predict with certainty how a patient is going to respond to a drug. If you just look at immunotherapy, it's a targeted therapy designed based on the understanding of the mechanisms of diseases, yet not all patients react the same when, when receiving it. If you go back to the, those different kind of scales, right, there is no question that the genetics that we're born with are one of the most important predictors of our future health. But, and I think, I think you said it perfectly, it's a predictor. It's not a guarantee. There's a lot of other factors that we need to think about. And what I'm about to say is not actually true. Like if you look at what happens to people's genetic code in it's different, both in when they're healthy or when they have most obvious example is cancer, mutations are things that, that can cause diseases. But largely every cell in our bodies has the same 
version of the genetic sequence that we inherited from our parents. If you think about that in this kind of hyperbolic sense, what I can predict about your health, my health, anybody's health from any period of time after their conception doesn't change. Like if I look at somebody's genetic code and I'm trying to predict whether or not they're going to have heart disease, I can probably find things that are going to be a decent predictor. There's certainly genes that are almost a, a guarantee that you have cystic fibrosis or that are a P53 mutation, a very high risk of developing cancer. But there is a huge spectrum of things in the middle, which are just okay predictors. So let's say we're, we're, let's just use the same example. You know, if I have something that is a potential predictor of heart disease and I'm 48. So if I spent those 48 years eating really healthy, low fat foods, or I spent those 48 years eating fatty red meat, I do like red meat and uh, smoking, which I don't do. I'm just trying to think of things that would be predictors of bad cardiac health. Like the outcome, are those are really important things for the prediction of whether or not I am going to be susceptible to having a heart attack or a stroke. All right, so so there's a huge amount of data beyond our genetics that we need to incorporate into these models. Again, the the, the patient equation is all about exactly that. Like, how do we constantly look for what I'll call signal pieces of information we can glean from how we, how we move around. Maybe it's something from like a, a smartwatch. Maybe it's a gene that we weren't thinking about. Maybe it's how those genes, because of what I eat or the environment that I live in um, or how I exercise are transcribed and what, and what proteins there's more of or less of in my body. So as wide as widely as possible, figuring out how, and this is where the natural language processing, machine learning, like no person is going to be able to, to look through such a wide aperture and look at all this data and, and figure out what the important predictors are. But we have machines that can help us do that. And if we can find those predictors, then we can be much more precise in figuring out who needs different therapies, who might not need different therapies. I think you can put this right back to what we were talking about with COVID-19. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with a really good model um, that had not just the two or the three, but the seven, eight, you know, predictors of who's the most susceptible. And it might not be just their genes or their age. It might be the environment that they were exposed to COVID-19 in or the number of times they were exposed, whatever it is, let's open the aperture, find those things and use that to make sure that the most vulnerable people get a vaccine first. It's, it's the same conceptual problem that I think will be really exciting for all of us as patients to solve. You mentioned your book, The Patient Equation. It's clear that it talks about everything that influences the way that a patient could be treated in a more personalized precision medicine. In a way, but any book is a huge undertaking. So, what I wonder here is what did you learn, you know, in the process, in digging through all the uh, research that you, you were reading uh, through your just everyday work? But then, you know, when you write a book, it's a different kind of a process. Honestly, it was an amazing experience and uh, a huge credit to my co-author, um, Jeremy Blockman, who is uh, who is actually a, a brilliant collaborator and actually in a wonderful way is super smart, but actually, besides being a, back, a write, great writer, has a background in law. So in terms of thinking about these things, there was somebody to, to talk to who obviously understood everything, but we were able to, I, I hope, put it into concepts and language that whether or not you have a background in life sciences or biology or medicine, you can certainly connect to and enjoy. So I just, I can't talk about what a great experience it was without talking about him. But beyond that, 
And really significantly, as you say, it was, a, it was a chance to revisit so many things that I had been thinking about for a long time. It was fascinating to kind of go through lectures that I'd done and papers that I'd written and rethink about them. You know, maybe in some cases it was a decade later, but with a new pair of eyes. And the book is not like a, a collection of thoughts of Glenn DeVries. It, it actually um, has a lot of other people in it who I have been uh, lucky enough to encounter and collaborate with along the way, as well as, well as a couple of people who I actually didn't even know until we actually started the process. And, and I thought, wow, these would be great opinions to supplement some of the things in the book. So I was able to revisit some conversations and connect dots that maybe were quietly connected in the back of my mind. It was almost like I was talking about opening the aperture. It was a way to kind of reopen the aperture on things that I've been thinking about for my whole career. And so, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of um, thinking about things from a, a teaching perspective. And uh, there was a guy, uh, Richard Feynman, who's a, a famous uh, physicist now, uh, passed away. But uh, and I'll, I'll get the exact quote wrong. We basically said, if you can't explain something to a to a seven year old, you're certainly not ready to teach it to a graduate student. And, and so one of the best parts of the book, almost like one of the best parts of preparing for any kind of um, encounter with somebody who you, you want to teach something to or a great experience of somebody learning was taking these ideas and really trying to, to boil them down to something that, that worked on a printed page. It was a lot of work, to your point, but it was it was certainly an experience that, uh, that I really, really enjoyed. One thought that went through my head while I was reading it was uh, how does the patient equation, so the wording itself, how does that differ from patient centricity? Uh, obviously, it's connected to, connected to patient. It, it's not plural. Uh, obviously, there's, there's lots of patients that are required and you got to collect their data. But, but I actually think one of the, one of the most exciting things that's happening in, in the world of healthcare uh, at large is that we are moving away from, from thinking about populations to thinking about individuals. And, you know, what is more patient centric than coming up with an equation for what is the best therapy? What is the right thing to do? Sometimes the right thing not to do. What are the right things to do for any particular individual at a very particular point in time? Which is why our whole conversation about, you know, where's all the data coming from? Not just my genetics, but about what I've been doing for the, my life up to this moment and in this moment. That to me is patient centricity. Taking things that used to be population problems, you know, yeah, we can, we can give statins to a bunch of people and it'll lower their cholesterol to like, no, what do we need to do for Glenn right now? Um, whether it's a preventative or dealing with a chronic condition or dealing with a, a, something life threatening, the patient equation is from that perspective really all about centricity uh, around that, that particular individual. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned for more. The upcoming episodes will feature digital health in South America with entrepreneurs from Colombia, Brazil, Venezuela, and Argentina. Visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse through other episodes as well. And to support the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. <laughs>